I have written in my notes Louis back where he belongs on the back of a man's motorcycle. Hello again and welcome to episode 13 of All the Way Through the podcast journey through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to find out whether we love him as much as we thought we did. As always, I am Matthew Dunn-Miles. I remember to say that this time. And I'm joined by Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello. I noticed that you've switched to saying it's episode 13 seamlessly because you're right, it will get confusing when we get to the episodes that aren't in a season. <laughs> yeah, this is going to get really confusing. So I thought episode 13 is a good way to go. But if you are interested in what episode of Weird Weekends we're on, it is series three, episode two. So Alex, where are we for this episode of Weird Weekends? Well, you might be quite confused when the episode opens because Louis is sat talking to an old white American man, which is a running theme of the episode. But actually, the episode is set in India and filmed completely in India. It is. And what are we in search of in India? In India, we're hoping to find enlightenment, which I guess is summed up as the meaning of life, the reason for being. And of course, since this episode was filmed, we've all discovered the meaning of life, which is great news. You're right. We start this journey with Louis chatting to an older man, his comfortable position, speaking to a man of a certain age. And Louis asking about whether he could be a guru. This older gentleman who we later find out about says it isn't happening in the next few days. But Louis says, but there's a chance. Which is definitely a Dumber and Dumber reference if I've ever heard one. So you're saying there's a chance. He says he's aiming for the top. Yeah, Louis's not messing around here. He's going all in. Louis says he's specifically following in the footsteps of Westerners searching for enlightenment. So although this episode is set in India and it's about Indian spirituality, Indian religions and cultures, it's mostly just white people who've moved from the UK or the US that are now telling other white people how to follow Indian culture. Yeah. So we're in Goa to start off with, and this is definitely Louis Goes travel log. This is kind of how every minor celebrity now does a series on the BBC where they go to India. Louis was there first, following in the footsteps of thousands of Westerners. That number is now far higher than that. The last stats I've got from 2019 by Sandy Akilari say that over 1.51 million Americans travel to India every year and over 1 million Brits. The only people that are beating them in terms of travelling to India are people from Bangladesh who literally shares a border with India. So this is a huge, huge industry for or India itself in terms of the tourism and I suppose cashing in on the spirituality element in a certain way. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how many of those people are going for the spirituality element. So we see Louis on the back of a motorcycle and it's the same old man that he was talking to in the opening sequence and that man is... Deepak, originally known as psychology professor Dr. Joseph E. Vidmar, but now he goes by his astrology name, Deepak. How would you describe Deepak's appearance? He looks uh, weathered. He's got quite long blonde hair, a little bit of a beard. Maybe Jeff Bridges could play him. Oh yeah, definitely Jeff Bridges. So the first stop off on the motorcycle is the Ajuna flea market, which I was looking on Lonely Planet, and they describe it as as much part of the going experience as a day on the beach. So this is very much Indian Trip 101. Deepak says, You can buy everything here but your soul. Which is deep. Already we're getting into this chat. Deepak almost immediately turns the questions round on Louis and says, why do you want to be enlightened? Louis's task here is to spend three days finding enlightenment, whereas his people have been trying to do this for years and centuries. But, you know, it's Louis. He only needs three days. And Deepak says, you know, enlightenment, it's not necessarily good for your bank account. It's an expensive thing to go after and it's not for everyone. And he asks Louis, why aren't you happy where you're at? Louis doesn't really have much of an answer for this apart from like, well, it's going to make a good episode. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, Louis says he doesn't really know what he wants, which is the kind of early 30s apathy that I'm here for right now. (laughs) So we have a wander around the flea market, some shots of some Coca-Cola cans and not much else. And then we're kind of escorted to Deepak's apartment room. Yeah, I get the impression it's sort of like a boarding house hotel situation. It's almost like a sort of dorm room or like a room in halls. Yeah, it's got a big halls vibe. Quite bare. He's keeping his clothes on the floor. Louis instantly is talking about possessions and he asks him what his most prized possession is and Deepak says it would be my computer. I need it to do my work. Thus the next two decades of work were born. And then Louis asks him about the TV that he's got. Deepak is very anti-TV. He says he's got it there, but he hates to put it on. Yeah, he said that it came with the room. I'm not buying that. 
His prized possessions, aside from the computer, are his papers and books and clothes, and that's all that he needs. And Louis says, it's quite surprising for a man of your age. It's quite different from the wife, kids, house full of stuff. And Deepak says, well, I had all of that, but it didn't make me happy. Deepak says it's incredibly hard. He says, if you're halfway comfortable with that situation, it's like pulling your feet out of mud, which is true of any big life change, really. Deepak says that now he's made that change, he feels happier and more alive. Although I think the implication is that he himself hasn't reached enlightenment, which seems to be a common thread. I liked the bit where when he's talking to Louis about how easy it would be to just stay in his comfortable life, Deepak says, I wouldn't recommend that you try to find enlightenment and do the same thing I've done. I think you should just stay in your life and it'll be nice, comfortable, powerful, secure and stupid. And I thought... That sounds okay. I think Louis's okay with that. He clearly isn't motivated enough to say, I could take this on full time. This is clearly, as Deepak comments, Make the show and then get back home and watch the telly. The limitations of a weird weekend summed up quite beautifully. They go together to meet Ched Villas, who's an Italian spiritual healer. So one person, at least, that isn't from the UK or the United States is in this. <laughs> Although he's not from India either. And they go to the beach for a type of meditation that's called channeling delight. Which I was interested to find out a bit more about. And this doesn't seem to be much of a term, except for I found a couple of Facebook posts by a centre in Italy, in Florence, called the Academy of Applied Metaphysics, which is still going. So this is clearly a very Italian brand of meditation that they are taking part in. In India. In India, yeah. With a room full of white Westerners. So basically the sort of gist of it is that they're all in a gazebo that's been erected on the beach and they're all sitting around in a circle, cross-legged. There's a lot of reaching up to the sky, shouting and grunting and just expelling noise and air, I suppose. Yellow! Yellow! At one point, Louis has someone holding onto his arms and helping him to make more noise. Chid tells him to imagine to be a tree in the wind. <laughs> we should all think about that. Channel that more. Yeah. At this point, I've wrote, this is great Instagram influencer content. <laughs> the setting, all the actions. Think of all the nice pics you could take in that tent. Oh man, so many nice pics. Think of all the likes. The engagement would be off the chain. I think my favourite moment is when things get a bit more intense and Chid Villas goes to channel things through each member of the group. But he's basically just tickling Louis until Louis falls over and you can see that Louis's trying really hard not to laugh. He gets his tummy tickled into submission <laughs> until he's on the floor on his belly like a kitten. Channeling delight. Why is Louis so susceptible to being put under by these people? This always happens to him. He seems to like being touched by old men a lot. That sounds terrible. Uh, the lawyers are telling us to stop talking there. <laughs> and then Louis gets the chance to ask a question of the cosmos through Chid Villas's spiritual helper. So another person that's there channels the cosmos, I guess. And he asks about his main aim of the documentary and how he can find enlightenment. She tells Louis to allow himself to be carried by the flow. You will find what you have been looking for. It's yourself. I enjoyed this scene very much, mainly because I think the director had a sly camera position put in where we hear this white woman telling Louis that India is a magical place. And then we cut to Louis and over his shoulder there is a group of Indian children just staring at them like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Which is quite <laughs> funny. But Louis is told, yeah, right, he's looking for himself all along. This is the kind of thing you meant to find out at the end of the movie, isn't it? Not at the very start. It was you all along. You were the friends you made along the way type thing. So he's got the answer, really, but he's still going to continue. Yeah. After they've finished on the beach, Louis speaks to Deepak and he says to him that he felt quite silly during the session because he's sort of very gangly. When he was putting his arms up, he was accidentally hitting lanterns and things that were hanging from the top of the tent. And Deepak says, oh, that was your unconscious creating a distraction. But that's okay. You know, it's crazy stuff. You need to get used to it. Deepak's a nice guy. He's clearly very invested in this, but he's not pushing Louis to get fully on board. I like the bit where he advises Louis to sort of let go and really get into it next time. And he says, if it's dangerous for you, I'll pull you. It becomes some kind of weird, like, drug trip slash seance. If your tummy is being tickled too much, Deepak will grab you. Jeff Bridges would do a great job of this role. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't think about that casting. 
they do have that kind of father-son thing that Louis seems to find a lot. And this continues into the next scene as we're back in Deepak's room and Deepak is arriving with a coffee for Louis who is laid out on the bed like a sulky teenager. Pretending to be asleep in his bed, fully clothed. On top of the bed, not under the covers. So that he can bring him a cup of coffee and pretend that he's woken up. <laughs> and that they maybe spent the night together just braiding each other's hair and... Telling ghost stories. So the conversation then turns to Deepak's own personal guru, who's a guy called Osho, who's been dead for around 10 years, we find out. And Deepak has pictures of this man on his walls and speaks very reverentially when he's talking about him. And Louis describes the photo of him as looking like a glamour puss like and a rock, a rock star. star. And says it's the equivalent of having Sting on your wall. Which is unfair because clearly Deepak has met Osho. This isn't just someone he's bought all the records of and seen in concert. I think he knows him at some level. And also, why is Sting the epitome of a rock star for Louis? Sting gets two mentions in this. I think Louis is just really interesting i really got big jk from jamiroquai vibes from that picture of osho he had the hat kind of weird hat with diabodies on it and just like a long gray beard and shades well as jk was disavowing people who may look like him elsewhere he may want to disavow osho as well this guy is not a squeaky clean guru interesting he is also known as rajneesh which is his original name and he started as a big critic of socialism in india which was kind of big after the war and when they gained independence it was a growing movement then he was a critic of mainstream religions and also gandhi and then he moves into his mysticism and spiritual teachings a bit later on with that and then he works on something which will appeal to western so in the end, Osho, also known as Rajneesh, in the 1980s moves to the United States into Wasco County, Oregon. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that to any Americans. But almost immediately there is conflict between him and the county's residents and the state government. And then essentially in 1985, in the wake of a series of serious crimes by his followers, including a mass food poisoning attack with salmonella bacteria and an aborted assassination plot, he is kind of expelled from America. Oh my god. That is some like Jonestown stuff. It's huge. So this guy is clearly a very controversial figure. As if Deepak didn't mention that. No. <laughs> He's just, you know, go with the comparisons to Sting. Gloss over that. <laughs> So after he was deported, he was then denied entry to 21 countries and eventually he returns to India and revives his movement until he dies in 1990. So yeah, this guy, it's not quite like having Sting on your wall. It's more like having, I don't, I don't even know, <laughs> Charles Manson almost. This is crazy. It is quite culty, isn't it? Yeah, a very controversial figure indeed. Well, the next scene kind of keeps him as like this silly figure. But yeah, it's, it's a bit dark knowing that. But actually, Deepak does say that his presence was so overwhelming that you wouldn't object to anything. So that does imply that he was a sort of manipulative, persuasive kind of guy. But his meditation techniques were uh, unique. Apparently the idea was to get the madness in your system up and out. It's kind of three stages this, isn't it? The first stage is exhaling wildly whilst headbanging. I've said that Deepak looks like he's probably used to this from his days following Led Zepp. You have to sniff and headbang for 12 minutes. Very specific. Yeah. Louis has a go and there's so much snot and spit that comes out of him in this scene. I said, oh my God, out loud whilst watching it. Louis can't make the full 12 minutes. He struggles. He tells Deepak, I hate this. <laughs> but then they both carry on together like they're headbanging at some sort of hay fever convention. And then the second part of the meditation is angrily shouting. Shouting and swearing. According to the captions from the BBC, Deepak says, what a fucking son of a bitch. God damn it, ah. <laughs> And he says that this element of it is catharsis, yeah. which I think we've all found that. The third part is to jump up and down on your heels saying, and he does actually refer to it as do the who or do the who who's at one point. So Louis gets to the screaming passionately bit and he gives it everything. This man has a lot pent up there. I think someone needs to have a word with Louis about this scream. <laughs> and then he tries to go into the who 
and immediately falls over. He loses his microphone because he's so passionately jumping. Deepak gives him some tips on his technique there and says, you need to land on your heels because, and I quote, that's where your sex centre is. I thought let's take a sudden turn where up to this point, Deepak, I was like, yeah, he's cool. And then he immediately became a creepy old man. Yeah, he says, if you want to get a woman turned on, have her jump on her heels. Sorry, did we just step back into the self-fulfillment episode here? (laughs) I thought the astrology book was the thing that you needed. But apparently now it's to ask people to jump on their heels. So Louis does it again and then he's more successful this time. And then he has to instantly stop with his arms in his air. And then they look blissful for a few minutes. And then they have to dance. So they both kind of awkwardly sway. And I've put them, they dance to no music like a pair of gammon dads. After Louis finished the sort of intense part of the meditation, that's where he's meant to find the enlightenment or find himself. And Deepak instructs him to try to find the gap between the thoughts where there's nothing that's where you will find yourself. It did cross my mind that he's basically just prompted himself to hyperventilate for a long time and then maybe you would be in a bit of a weird mindset after that. (laughs) But the main thing that Louis seems to get out of it is a sore heel from all the jumping. Deepak says at the end that Louis's energy has changed already. He's seeing a change, mainly it's the dizziness, but he's seeing something. So after this, Louis asks Deepak for a bit of advice about tracking down his own guru, which is his next step in his journey. And Deepak says, you can't swing a dead dog without hitting a guru in this country, which is a phrase I'm going to steal for the rest of my life. I like that phrase a lot. So Deepak says it's about finding the right one for him. It's like a phone contract. You want certain minutes, data requirements. Louis says he thinks he wants one that does miracles specifically. And Deepak kind of says that he would say to stay away from people like that. But then just as he's you know, sounding very sensible and very normal, he then calls Louis a TV drugged zombie. Deepak's main advice is that Louis needs to connect with joy and bliss to be fully alive. And that's his sort of parting message. And then they have a really nice hug at the end. (laughs) And as Louis walks away, Deepak says, I'm going to miss that guy. He knew the camera was there, but it was nice anyway. I was looking for more information on Deepak himself and came across his obituary. He died on the 24th of February 2018, so not that long ago. And there's a kind of amazing obituary on a site called oshonews.com. He was clearly still very invested in the movement, written by his wife. And it's going through his last few days. The last bit is really quite nice. It says, and then he stopped breathing. I thought that was it. He had a big last out breath with a big, beautiful smile on his face. I wanted to check his pulse, trying to look for this and that. At that moment, his left hand lifted up in the air, holding it up in the air. Just when I wondered what he's doing, he slowly put it down. And at that moment, I saw a pulse in his vein of his left hand that became weaker and weaker until it stopped. Which is, you know, a kind of sad ending, but also it's very nice that he had someone there who clearly cared about him. He was apparently living between India and Taiwan, where he was spending a lot of his time. He would spend his winters in India. Did it say anything about what he did between when we last saw him? He wrote columns, essentially, for a number of publications associated with this guru. Astrology columns. He was Mystic Meg. He was the Mystic Meg of India. (laughs) So that's another person who can blame him if Jeff Bridges says no. Perfect. She's still going, by the way. Sometimes I check my Mystic Meg horoscope. Thank God. He leaves Deepak, his dad, and carries on on his own. Louis then in a tuk-tuk, sort of like a motorised rickshaw. He's got a new short sleeve patterned shirt that we haven't seen before. Somehow the pattern seems to perfectly match the interior of the tuk-tuk. It's kind of paisley, but kind of not. I've said he's travelling around in a paisley shirt like it's the Darjeeling Limited. That's probably where the inspiration came from, actually. Wes Anderson, big Louis Theroux fan. So Louis says that he's in search of a famous guru. He's going to go for one of the big ones. And we see lots of adverts on street signs for a guru called Amma, who's this woman who's sort of older. She's not grey-haired or anything like that. She's not ancient. Her main form of helping people to find enlightenment and to learn more is by hugging them. And she's got loads of disciples like hundreds and hundreds of people maybe thousands i don't know and louis decides he's gonna join and become one of her disciples for like half an hour to find out how that is the hugging is such a big thing that according to her wikipedia page there have been times when she has given her hugs for more than 20 continuous hours this is where sting gets his second shout out because he has had a hug from amma this is when we find out louis just like an obsessive sting fan this is actually just where has sting been travel log 
Louis's guide within Amma's devotee group is a guy called Ramanan. Louis goes to find him. The first person that he asks for help, it turns out, has taken a vow of silence and cannot talk to Louis. And then Louis asks if he can tickle him. Yeah, like he's like one of the beef eaters at the Tower of London. I don't understand. Louis just loves tickling and being tickled. So Ramanan then appears and tells Louis that this man is taking a vow of silence. Ramanan is, I've said, a clean-cut American, quite smiley. He looks like the guy who plays Clark Kent in the Lois and Clark TV series, Benakurta. They have a little laugh about the guy who's taking a vow of silence. And then they're on a coach. They've jumped straight on a coach. They're on this coach with 400, well, probably not on one coach, but there are coaches going all over India to take Amma on tour and her disciples are going with her. And there's 400 of them all going. And to pass the time, one of the things they like to do is chant all the names that Amma is known as. You can do the short version or you can have the extended album track. The short version is 100 names. Ramanan takes charge on the bus. Again, the white man taking charge of a spiritual thing and leads the chant. I assume you've learned them all yourself. Uh, Let me list them off for you right now. (laughs) (laughs) The radio edit, just the 100. After this, then Louis asks if they consider Amma to be a god. Where does she fit in kind of the spiritual hierarchy? Ramanan leaves this kind of open. He says, if we have a god on earth, she's the closest thing we could have. I would say on the same state and level as Jesus. So this is like religious top trumps. And Louis says, well, I'm no Christian, but he gives Jesus a good review. He says, if you were meeting Jesus, you'd want to be knocked off your feet by that man. And Ramanan sort of says, well, that's why I'm here and why all of us are here because Amma has knocked us all off our feet. That's why they need the coach because they can't walk anywhere. She's quite little, but she could be like one of those rugby players that tackles (laughs) the ankles. Or use like a bowling ball, knocks them like skittles. (laughs) As they're talking, the 100 names wasn't enough. So everyone starts on the long album version of all of Amma's names, which is a list of 1,000 names. I love this bit. Louis asks, how many have they done so far? And Ramanan goes and checks and he's like, oh, they've done 47 so far. This one takes about an hour, which is probably a good way to pass time on a coach trip. I guess it's a bit like singing 99 bottles of beer. Yeah. And also some people get a bit sick when they're reading in a car. So they reach the lodgings where they're staying that night. I guess, obviously, it's a tour, so they must be going to different places. And everybody gets off the bus and everyone's being fed and milling around. And Louis asks Ramanan if he has found enlightenment himself. And he sort of laughs and says no. He says he still has things like jealousy, desire. And Louis asks him, so what is enlightenment? And he says... Enlightenment is when the mind is completely clear and calm and quiet with no thought, really. And Louis says, is that a good thing? Yeah, you're not not happy or sad you just are i think is the idea and ramanan says you can even conquer death not physically you can't live forever i don't think unless ramanan is still alive then i apologize i wasn't really sure about this does he mean sort of like the fear of death i think so i don't think he thinks you can live to be three thousand years old it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer but it sounds quite good louis says once you get there it's plain sailing which is maybe an understatement of the century Then there's this very interesting interview where Louis bumps into someone who's praying down on his knees, a white guy with a shaved head, and he has this kind of unnerving smile the entire time that they're talking. And when Louis says, what are you doing? He says, I'm asking the mother to be with me, meaning Amma. But Louis says, what are you doing? What are you doing, sir? Which is a bit Christmas carol, I felt. The other thing that made me laugh is the guy is wearing the same sort of badge as the man at the beginning, which indicated that he had taken a vow of silence. And Louis sort of badgers this guy to talk to him and then says, wait, you're wearing one of those badge things. Should you be talking to me? But the guy explains that this badge is not one of the total silence badges. This is just the unnecessary conversations badge, the no small talk badge. Basically, it's his free pass for saying, I don't want to talk to you. I can be as ignorant as I want. As they talk to each other, the guy's still just got this smile the whole time. And Louis's smiling as well, and they're doing a lot of intense eye contact. But Louis eventually says, You're freaking me out. The thing is about this guy is he looks like an extra in American History X that's been dressed up in Indian attire. It's very freaky. So he asks, do you stay here? Can I see your room here? The guy takes him to this cramped shared room. There's a lot of other men in there all on single beds. Louis says, can we have a tour? And he's like, well... This is my bed. And he's got an altar at the end of his bed that he's made with a little doll that looks like Amma. And he says it's to remind himself of, you know, what's important to him. 
And this guy, again, is an American. So Louis tries to ask him about his job when he lived in the US and sort of his past life. And the guy laughs all of this off and just says, oh, it's insignificant. It doesn't mean anything. It's very shallow. He should have just tapped the badge. But we learned that this man's name was Courtney. Courtney Cooper was his name before. And Louis is talking about his tone is very solemn and it's not like talking to a human being. And then they get into a very existential chat about ego and then almost a happy off. Who's happier, Louis or Courtney? Louis thinks he's as happy as Courtney. And Courtney argues that the depth of the ecstasy of losing the self is so deep that once you taste it, all other pleasures are insignificant. Which I think is the premise of train spotting when they take heroin. <laughs> well, he kind of looks like he could be an extra in train spotting. I think Louis does rattle him to an extent because he obviously gets kind of frustrated when Louis keeps asking him about his past self. It's a bit weird. Louis says, can I speak to Courtney now? As though he's like possessed. But Courtney doesn't really solve that with his answer though, does he? He says he let his past self die. I let Courtney Cooper (laughs) die. Which is very much the inspiration for Taylor Swift's lyric, I'm sorry, but the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. (laughs) Why? Because Courtney Cooper's dead. Although there is an edge to his voice, he's still just like smiling serenely as he says it. And it's just really unnerving. And then after that, they kind of, again, stare each other out for a while, just smiling at each other until Louis says, God, it's too weird. Too weird for weird weekends. (laughs) Courtney has broke the premise of the show. He's that weird. But would you like to know where Courtney is now? Oh, yeah. I could track Courtney down to the Divine Diamond Institute in Lisbon, Portugal, where he runs a facility with his wife. They last wrote a blog post in 2015, which was so unreadable, I could not tell you even a quote from it. It was that bad. Is he going by Courtney again? No, he's not going by Courtney. He's going by his new name. And he's grown his hair back, but he is receding. Honestly, I'm not even being unkind. He's just a really weird guy. He's intense. You would cross the street if you saw him, no doubt. There's even a bit later where, just in passing, Louis says to Ramanan, oh, Courtney's a bit intense, isn't he? And Ramanan's like, yep. Louis clearly scarred by this. He went too deep too quickly. He immediately leaves. <laughs> yeah. He books the next train out of there so he doesn't have to sleep in a room with Courtney and his dolls. He goes for something a bit more mainstream. So he heads on a train to Mayapur, which is near the Ganges, we're told, which is the headquarters of the Hare Krishna movement. I'd agree that Hare Krishna is the most mainstream part of this episode. There are Hare Krishna followers all over the UK. As of June 2019, according to the Wikipedia article, there are 15,000 followers of Hare Krishna in the UK. And I think everyone has seen the Hare Krishna people at airports or in particular public spaces. They chant Hare Krishna. So yes, Louis' contact there is a man called Hari Suri, who has been a disciple for the last 30 years, which probably puts him starting in the 70s. So he's clearly been there a long while. It sounds like he's been there from the sort of founding era of it. Yeah. Originally from Scunthorpe, he says. He's from Scunny. Weird accent he's managed to develop. Yeah, very strange. It's kind of a bit transatlantic, but there is still very much a slight northern Jimbo and tint to it. He also has glasses, a mullet. A lot of the Harry Krishna guys have shaved heads and then just long at the back, but he's got a cropped haircut with a bit of a mullet and he's in a curta like traditional wear. So he looks at home, but he also could easily look at home next to a dartboard in a pub. Keeping it versatile. The two of them discuss what a guru actually is at this point. His definition of guru is probably the clearest definition we've had yet. He says guru means someone who knows God and can then present that to a disciple. So it's kind of like the middleman. That's the most clear definition we've had of that so far from anyone. Yeah, there's no miracles discussed specifically. By the way, Louis got a new orange shirt in this scene. I assumed it was the same shirt. It's different. It's got crosses embroidered rather than flowers. And it looks a little bit fresher. I think the other shirt had died. He's obviously got himself some new clothes for this series. But very similar to his old clothes. So anyway, he's chatting to Hari Suri and they're doing a tour and they go past a photo of the founder of the movement called Srila Prabhupada. And then Louis asks about miracles. Of course he does. Louis wants miracles. Hari Suri explains that the founder of the movement said turning what he calls sense enjoyers into worshippers of God is the only miracle that this guy felt like he needed to do. And then we discuss what is meant by sense enjoyers. And this is the enjoyment of things like sex, alcohol, nice food, which is all limited and temporary. It's enjoyment of something instant, but doesn't feed the soul. You know, does a kebab feed the soul? 
Probably, I would say yes. Yeah, I've had some pretty good food. What's the meal that you found closest to this is fed my soul? Oh, definitely like a really good burger. Sorry, that's quite a meaty answer. But also some veggie burgers feed your soul, I would say. Because you can feel morally superior. That's maybe what it is. You found (laughs) enlightenment. It's a veggie burger. In a bag of corn chicken nuggets, mate. Harry Surrey suggests that to help Louis get in the mood, it might be wise for him to get changed. Essentially, he spotted that shirt and says, not a chance you're wearing that in my circle. Much like he's not allowed to wear it on Home Shopping Network, he's not allowed to wear it in the Harry Krishna Network. The people who accept anyone will not accept him in that shirt. The road to enlightenment for Harry Krishna is pretty simple. It's to dance and chant. So Louis gets done up in his tunic. It's like a robe skirt with a tunic over the top in a flattering beige and white combo. And then as they're walking out, Louis manages to sort of, it's like a big split in his robe and his bare legs just poking out. It's a good job no tabloid paparazzi around at that point. He has to get his uh, knots redone. So they go and kind of experience the Hare Krishna experience and do the chanting and dancing. I've wrote, at least there's actually Indian people this time. There is not just white people involved. And Louis comes out and again, much like he did with Deepak, he says, ah, it was kind of nice, but is that enlightenment? I'm not sure. Harry Suri explains, it's a gradual thing. You do this over and over again and it dissipates your ignorance. I thought it was funny that Louis said that the chant wasn't catchy. But Harry, sorry, had written out the lyrics to the Harry Krishna chant for Louis. And there's a lot of repetition in that. I don't think you would really need it written out. If you just listen to it a couple of times, you could probably pick it up. But that's almost a bit too mainstream for Louis. He's flip-flopping in this episode. He wants to go deep into the spirituality stuff, then gets a bit scared, then wants some safety, and then wants to go back into something a bit more intense. He just wants magic, doesn't he? He just wants magic. He's chasing miracles. Harry Suri, by the way, is still going and still living in India. As of November 2020, he was a guest on a YouTube channel called Harry Krishna TV. It gives a little bio of him here and he's still living in India with his wife and his daughter and he's writing, publishes memories of travelling around with the movement. I wonder if he's still got a mullet. He's got a shaved head now. I didn't see the party at the back. It was business up front though, definitely. Louis goes to meet a Hare Krishna guru who is called Jaya Pataka Swami. He is, as you might have guessed by now, white and from America originally. And Louis has obviously picked up on this as well, to his credit. But the way he asks it, he kind of dances around the question. He asks why Hare Krishna has attracted such a cosmopolitan following from the West, meaning why are you all white? And the Swami is American, but he's lived in India for 30 years, he says. He says enlightenment's for everyone. But mostly for white people. But what this man wants is people to constantly follow him around, shielding him from the sun with umbrellas. As Louis is interviewing him, this guy's followers or devotees gather around him. They've all got the Hare Krishna look, the shaved head, the ponytails. It feels very odd. Yeah, it's a little bit zombie movie-esque. Everyone just kind of crowding closer. There's at least one video camera that's not to do with Louis' crew. Someone else is recording audio on a tape recorder. But not for the words, just for the sound vibrations, is how they explain it. The sound vibration of the master. And like you say, there's someone holding an umbrella over them to make sure they don't get sunburnt and things like that. But when Louis says, why do all these people follow you? The Swami says, oh, I don't know. I have no private life anymore. So it's almost he's making it sound like he doesn't like it. But it definitely seems like he does like it yeah i mean there's some advantages there so they go on a walking tour with him and there are people bowing to the swami as he walks around wanting to touch his feet which is a sign of respect in indian culture but he kind of intervenes while they try and do this and then explains to louis that he's not recommended as if there's some sort of swami code book that he lets people do this because as much as it's them getting good vibrations from him he's taking in their bad vibrations and he says we get overloaded says it's embarrassing i don't know man that seems like a weird reaction yeah it does a little bit it's like oh i'm a messenger from god but i don't need your shit right now okay (laughs) So then they go on and do some fun tasks. At one point, they're feeding an elephant. There's also a point where they're sitting being fanned by someone. Again, kind of adds to this emperor type persona. And then he says, Should we go over and see about uh, feeding the uh, hungry people? Shall we? Shall we pop over? 
So they go to this place and there's like rows and rows of tables. People are giving out food and he's being followed everywhere he goes. And they go for a sit down meal, which Jayapataka Swami says happens only once or twice a year because it was so big. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, because Louis points out the sort of potential hypocrisy that it's a huge feast after him saying we don't do any sensual gratification. And he explains that this is all to please God or this is all given to God, essentially. I'm sure God loves your digested food. <laughs> Look, God doesn't need those bad vibrations, actually. So if you wouldn't mind. Exactly. And then they're on to the Ganges, which the Swami explains is the liquid love of God, is how he puts it. Great tagline. You should have that on the posters. Is the Ganges a river? I'm rubbish at geography. It's the biggest river in India. There we go. He says that bathing in the Ganges, although they aren't bathing in the Ganges, they're on a boat, but bathing in the Ganges can make you more spiritual. And he says, you have a good karma bank account because Louis is saying, OK, well, if I do this now and then I go back to the UK, will I still be more spiritual? And the Swami basically says, yes, that will stay with you now. And then Louis asks, if I am going down the Ganges and chanting Hare Krishna, is this a double whammy effect? Is this a double score? And the Swami says, yes. Yes, this will do you very well. It feels like they're both thinking about this in the wrong way now. (laughs) It's not like a video game where you have to tick off missions. Is there any poor I can feed while on this boat chanting (laughs) Gary Krishna for a triple score? But clearly God is not pleased. And so disaster strikes and they hit the banks of the river. And they get a bit stuck. But then Louis suggests that they continue to chant and they manage to get the boat free. So Louis saves the day. They finally arrive at shore and part ways. They don't bathe, though, because people do go to bathe in the Ganges. It is meant to be very spiritual to do that, and people have their ashes spread there and stuff, but they never do it. You'd at least stick a hand in, wouldn't you? Or a foot. He doesn't even bother. He just chants while someone (laughs) fixes his boat. As the Swami leaves, Louis wonders in the narration if having disciples is actually better for the guru than it is for the followers. It kind of seems like maybe the fame element is getting to his head. Interestingly, Jai Pataki Swami is still alive, but has had very serious health issues in the last five years. He had a tweet from January 2nd where he says, for the first time in nine months, I was leaving Mayapur Gate. Actually, first time in nine months, I left my quarters. On the request of the health forum, I went to a doctor to get his health check, essentially. But he's clear someone who is shielding because he's very vulnerable to hear a little more from the indian's perspective on godmen gurus and swamis i spoke to bhavdeep kang a political journalist in india for over 30 years and the author of a book titled gurus stories of india's leading barbers my name is bhavdeep kang that's a bit of a mouthful i'm a journalist i have been one for 35 years now I took some time off from writing on politics to work on this book. I found this whole phenomenon of Godman fascinating, not just in terms of the size of their following or the empires they build, but in the faith they inspire in millions of people. Now, who are they? What is it that makes them special? How do they inspire this unconditional, one might even say blind faith in these masses of people? Why do they do it? What are they hoping to achieve? Do they have some kind of divine mission? So I wanted to take a close-up look at them and try and resolve this enigma. But I have to say I didn't quite succeed, though I did get some answers. Is there a set path to becoming a guru? Is this something that is self-fulfilling or are you selected by others? Well, you have to remember that anyone can become a guru. There's no standard course of study or examinations or certification. You can be initiated by an established guru or just become enlightened. You can belong to an established organization or build up one of your own. Guru is a generic term, but they don't have that much in common. Yoga gurus, meditation gurus, Vedanta gurus, some will follow the bhakti tradition, reaching God through love. Others emphasize self-realization. So if you take a look at India's top gurus, they offer very different spiritual products. Murari Bapu, for instance, is a kathakar, literally a storyteller. Baba Ramdev is your yoga and Ayurveda guru. Sadhguru is big on Shiva. Hugging Amma is a Krishna devotee. So they appeal to you at different levels in different ways. 
One of the things talked about a lot is the concept of these small miracles, people who can make things appear. Is that really important or is this kind of a sideshow? Not at all. It's very much a sideshow and the miracles are added to the story later. The big league gurus will first appeal to your intellect and then ask you to suspend disbelief. But if you're asking whether they actually have superpowers, whether they're more than human, you know, the best I can do is to repeat what our former foreign minister, Mr. Natwar Singh, once told me. He believed that many of the gurus had special powers to begin with. The Hindi term is Siddhi, but with increasing interaction with the world, they would lose these Siddhis. It's like the world seeps in and gradually corrupts them. I never met Osho, but I visited his hometown, the place where he grew up in central India, and it's clear that he was precocious, a genius. By the age of 15, he had read hundreds of books on economics, philosophy, the social, physical, and life sciences. You name it, he'd read it. And you can see that vast body of knowledge being mulled over, processed, analyzed, internalized, and then reflected in his books and speeches. So if knowledge is the path to God, then yes, he was in touch with the divine, but whether he had special powers, I don't know. There is one guru who perhaps makes a case for special powers. And I say that only because our former minister of science, Jaipal Reddy, he was a diehard rationalist and atheist. And he once told me that he had no explanation for Chandraswamy's abilities. He didn't want to, but he was forced to believe that the man was something out of the ordinary. I think these myths are added later. And of course, there's an element of special effects as well in some cases. You mentioned Osho. How do gurus avoid being brought down by scandals and controversy? Godmen have been very controversial of late, but I think the central question here is why do they get themselves in trouble? Part of it is easy to understand. When you're building an empire, there are bound to be some questionable transactions, accusations of land grab, violations of law. The guru doesn't really know what his entourage is up to. The other bit is a bit complex. You know, you have to understand that this guru-devotee relationship, it's built on this principle of absolute surrender. So gurus will tend to exploit that. You have instances of sexual misconduct, often involving minors who are most vulnerable. Then with all that adulation and access to unlimited funds, the guru becomes a bit of a megalomaniac. He might actually believe he's above the law. I think that's what happened to Osho. And bad gurus more often than not will be brought to justice. The Indian legal system works slowly, but it works. Your big league gurus, you know, apart from obvious exceptions, will generally steer clear of trouble. There are always allegations that comes with the territory, but by and large, they keep their noses clean. Is this a pleasant role for individuals who become gurus or is it quite a stressful career to undertake? It's stressful in the sense that you are taking on the stresses of hundreds, even thousands of people. Fairly recently, one of the gurus I had written about, Bhayuji Maharaj, committed suicide. Now, here is the man that people went to for solace and he couldn't find it himself. So at some point, something's got to give. If you're depressed or stressed, you will approach your guru. To use the Hindi term, he is your Marg Darshak, someone who shows you the way. And uh, that's a big responsibility. In your book, you write about Amma, the hugging guru. Surely someone like this who makes people feel better through hugging can only be a force for good. Yes, I absolutely. I agree with that. Think about it this way. What's important is their message. You know, in this age of global warming, overpopulation, conflict in every sphere, we are in an increasingly edgy world and they deliver this message of universal love and peace and living in harmony or with nature. So I would say Godmen are absolutely relevant and maybe it's something we need. 
for example, we have uh, Sadhguru and Shri Shri addressing UN forums, leading mass meditations, talking global peace, emphasizing the need for spiritual traditions, for yoga as a way of life. And right now, that's probably something the world needs. So this documentary is set in late 1999, early 2000, and two decades have passed since then. What's been the biggest change in the role of gurus in that time? Two things, really. The first is technology, and the second is the economic transformation of India and of the world, really, with globalization. Technology in particular has changed the game. Earlier, your guru was accessible only in person. Now you see him or her on your laptop, no matter where in the world you are, you can hear them speak. If it's an interactive session, you can put your questions. So technology has widened their reach. Today, when Sadhguru speaks, he's got an audience of hundreds of thousands. Plus, you get a daily dose of wisdom from him on WhatsApp, or you subscribe to his YouTube channel. You don't need to go all the way to Coimbatore in the south of India to see him. And then you see more wealth, plus more inequity, and both work in favor of Godman. Because if you're rich, you find you're still not happy, you look to a Godman for direction, right? If you're poor and miserable, you're going to need the Godman all the more. So I would say the role they play hasn't changed, but their reach and their appeal has been enhanced. This documentary focuses a lot on the Westerners who move to India or go to India in search of these gurus. How much does that influx of Westerners help enforce the place of gurus in Indian society? Or is it completely inconsequential? Does it not really matter? Not at all. A big league guru will have a global footprint, you know, a mix of ethnicities in his ashram or his organization. The very fact that you've attracted people from all over the world elevates you from a run-of-the-mill godman to an instrument of India's soft power. You're globalizing yoga, Indian traditional medicine, Hindu philosophy, meditation. So making your mark abroad means you'll be taken more seriously at home. And this is where the Indian diaspora, which is huge, plays a role. You find a following there and the scope for outreach multiplies 10x. They're also a big source of funds. There's this guru in the south of India who built this temple of gold literally gold, apparently with donations from people who live abroad. In a way, it's like a multinational corporation. You have branches all over the world, and that multiplies your reach and strength. There's a philosophical component to this. One of the most fundamental messages in the Upanishads, the later Vedic texts, is Vasudeva Kutumbakam. The world is one family. Spiritual leaders take that quite seriously and they want to reach out to everybody. Indian gurus have had a huge impact on the West, right from Swami Vivekananda's seminal speech, September 11th, 1893, the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, introducing Indian philosophy to the world, talking about tolerance and universal acceptance at that time. Then later you have Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the Beatles guru, bringing meditation to the West. To this day, TM has a huge number of practitioners all over the world. And we now have an international yoga day. So yeah, it cuts both ways. The gurus need the West and the West loves gurus. So Louis had a nice time on the boat. He's topped up his good bank account, but he still wants more. What has he not got, Alex? He wants proper miracle shit. He wants a guru. He wants a goddamn miracle. And he's found the perfect guy. This guy's going to give it to him or give him as close as he's going to get. This man is known as Sri Ganapati. He is a third generation Indian Swami. He is part of Hinduism and he's introduced by scenes from music videos that he's put together. One where he's buried up to his head in sand and then one he's kind of splashing in a pool. Louis says in the voiceover that his strange music videos proclaim the powers of his unique spiritual melodies. So his whole bit is that he helps people through music in the same way that Amma helps people through hugging. Very much the Cliff Richard of this. 
Or Sting. Maybe Sting. Well, Sting apparently hasn't gotten on this yet, so that's coming anytime, that collab. He's done a collab with Shaggy. Surely you can do one with this guy. <laughs> Wait, has he? They did an album together. That's a real thing. A whole album? Yeah. Not just one song, a whole album. That's the opposite of a miracle, I think. So Louis visits what he describes as a huge complex where a community of followers are living and all following this swami. And again, he's wearing another good new shirt that we haven't seen before. Short sleeve, white with blue. Again, kind of crosses on them. Not religious crosses, more like medieval. It's not some sort of crusades vibe going on here, is there? It does feel a little bit like that, actually, now that I think about it. But nonetheless, it's a nice shirt that isn't that awful other orange shirt. He goes to meet with a guy called Mike, who has followed Sri Ganapati for seven years, but he lives in the US, so he's actually only visiting temporarily. I'm not actually sure how long he's been there. Central casting, who is playing Mike? I have written, he really reminds me of Mac's mum in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Okay, I've gone for Woody Allen. That's probably better. (laughs) It's more the cropped yet fluffy hair. Feels very 80s. And then he's got thick, clear plastic frame glasses that would probably be quite in now. But bear in mind, this is 20 years ago. He's wearing kind of like a tunic, but he's got a pink scarf. Yeah, I feel like he really doesn't look of his time or of any time. They kind of talk about Louis' ongoing scepticism. And Mike says, oh, join the club. I'm a total sceptic. Mike, you've been following a man of miracles for the last seven years. You can definitely not count yourself as a sceptic. Mike's take on the whole community is that people are improving themselves individually, but all together. And they're all following this one man, but it's fine. It's not a cult. It's definitely not a cult. It's a band because, as we've talked about, Shri Ganapati's music is part of the spiritual journey. It's the good vibrations he gives out. He uses his music to cure people, as we've talked about. And Mike says, Sometimes he intros a song by going, you know, this one's for back problems. I absolutely lost it at this point. Just imagining a band coming on stage and going, this one's for back problems. (laughs) Or this one's for eyesight is his next one. To which Louis says, you wear glasses. Do you think the Swami could fix your eyesight, Mike? And Mike goes, it could happen. He's done bigger things than that. Huge sceptic, by the way, just to remind you. Huge sceptic, but he'll choose that over laser eye surgery any day. Mike takes Louis to a garden of meditation stones for them to meditate together. But I think quite relatably, and this probably makes Mike my favourite character in this episode, he says that he can't remember which direction he's supposed to face. So he might be doing it wrong. The Swami had given him directions, but he totally forgot. So they were just kind of sat there, maybe not facing the right way. They leave the meditation, which maybe didn't go as well as they hoped. And Mike's talking about the Swami's supernatural powers, which has been discovered, he says, through practice and meditation. And these are called siddhis. And this is the kind of supernatural miracle that Louis is craving at this point. One of the things that Shri Ganapati does is materialise jewellery for people. And he even did a lovely necklace for Mike. Very lovely. Definitely not from Claire's accessories or similar. (laughs) Definitely not owned by every five-year-old girl in the world. He adds that he doesn't think these materializations are for show. They're for energy balance or spiritual protection only. So as Louis says, so he wouldn't materialize me a new car. And Mike says, well... Probably not. He's not totally sure, but probably not. He could. If he wanted to, he could knock you out of Ford Fiesta at any point he wanted, but he just doesn't fancy it. Like, he doesn't fancy fixing my eyes. I'm interested to know what the other powers that he has are. So I guess he can heal people through music. That's quite a big power. And he can materialise plastic beads from orifices or wherever they come from. But... What else? We don't hear any other specifics on what he can do. We do at one point, which is coming up. Okay, sorry. Maybe maybe I missed that. Then Mike talks about his life back home in the US. He is a physicist working in a lab. A man of science. Louis sort of says to him, look, you're a scientist. How can you look at all of this in a scientific way and still think it's real? Mike gives a strange answer where he's like, oh no, I do think of everything scientifically. I'm science through and through, but I just have this love and affection for Swamiji. I mean, basically what he's saying is, I've just decided I want to believe it. Yeah, it's one of those things where some people will say something about themselves, which is so not true. Like, I'm very quiet, I'm very timid, and it's usually the most talkative person you know. Mike saying he's a total sceptic and a man of science while following a man who gives him jewellery that he is magicking up from Claire's. 
But Louis's all on board. He's going to go through the whole spiritual exercises. And so we get a little montage sequence of Louis going through all the training. It involves some yoga. He's on a therapy bed. I think that vibrates the music, doesn't it? Through it. This one's for your back problems. And then some singing. They do some communal singing. Of course, Louis's got an acoustic guitar in his hands. He is that guy at the house party. And we get a brief glimpse of Swamiji over a fire. He's putting something into a fire. But we don't get to have any contact with him yet because it's time for the sleepover. Louis says that he doesn't believe that the Swami performs miracles after that day, but he's willing to stay and meet with him and see what happens. So it's Mike's last night in India before he goes home. And the next day, as a treat, he gets to meet with the Swami one-to-one. And Louis is basically just going to barge in and take over that special moment that Mike's been looking forward to for seven years or however long and (laughs) ask his own questions. So he sleeps over with Mike in the dorm they both have separate beds just if you're wondering separate beds but both stripped down to their pants Mike's got a little pair of red underpants on Louis's got some sort of weird design boxes on which are quite trashy we see them switch off the light and then there's a quick cut they're turning the light back on it's clearly very early Louis looks like he hasn't slept at all and then Mike is talking a bit about the Swami and his abilities and he says that there's a guy there who's a shopkeeper from London and he said that the Swami was in his shop buying some vitamins It's good to see the man is looking after himself. The guy gives him the bill and says it's this much. And so the Swami taps his foot on the floor and a £50 note appears from his foot. Was this the other miracle you were talking about? This is the other miracle. An inconvenient amount to be summoned, to be honest. As someone who's worked in retail, no one likes the guy with a £50 note. It's just awkward. They can often be counterfeit. Yeah, I'm checking that under a light. (laughs) Especially if he's made it appear from his foot. Am I going to trust that? Is that legal tender? (laughs) This interaction is really awkward to watch because Mike tells a story and I really felt for him because sometimes I get carried away with how funny I find a story and I'm really bad at telling it and then nobody reacts the way I think they should. But he gets to the end of the story about the shopkeeper and he's obviously expecting Louis to be like, oh my God, that's so funny. That's so crazy. And Louis just kind of looks at him like, right, okay. So he did some sleight of hand magic and produced a 50 pound note. Fine. The next question doesn't help. Maybe this wasn't the case, but it seems like immediately after that, Louis then goes, don't take this the wrong way, Mike. Which as soon as someone says that, you're going to take it the wrong way. Was there any sadness in your life before you came to see the Swami and committed to him. And Mike kind of bumbles around for an answer, but openly says, you know, I have this saying that fundamentalism is the aftermath of a nervous breakdown. And Louis says, is that what happened to you? And Mike is clearly quite upset by that question and says, no, why would I say that if that was something that had happened to me? I read that as, yes, that's definitely what happened to me. He gets really defensive and upset and he says a couple of things like, oh, well, it's obviously plainly obvious. He's quite embarrassed and angry at himself. And yeah, it just really feels quite horrible. It is horrible, but it's a fair question Mike has kind of given up his life as a serious physicist to follow this guy and I suppose that, like we talked about earlier Deepak mentions you don't make such a drastic life decision unless you're really unhappy with the life you have so it's a fair question it's just it's not nice to see Mike who's clearly a nice guy and Louis says that then afterwards having to deliberate this so publicly anyway they decide that they'll talk about this in the car on the way home because <laughs> they've got to meet with the swami Louis says that he is worried that people just want the Swami to have powers because, I mean, yeah, that would be great if there was someone we could all follow who had magical powers and could heal us. But they go and meet him together, like I was saying, Mike's kind of exit interview from being there. And the guy's really smiley. He seems like a very happy, positive personality. He hugs Louis very tightly to him. But then they have a bit of an odd conversation. So it starts with Louis asking about Mike's progress, a bit like it's a parent-teacher meeting. How is he getting on in maths this year? The question immediately gets turned back though, doesn't it? Where Swamiji says, well, you should ask him. Which is the same kind of technique as the guy before who was on the Ganges. He also, when he's asked, why do your followers follow you? He instantly goes, well, why don't you ask them? It's kind of a diversion tactic. It's interesting. I feel like you have quite a lot of responsibility if you're leading hundreds of people and you should maybe have to explain yourself a little bit. Yeah, of course. Louis gets to the crux of asking about the miracles. He's interested to know about this. And this is his kind of first chance to really speak to someone one-on-one who is claiming to do miracles and try to debunk this or at least get some insight into what's really going on. So he asks him, if you can make things appear as miracles, why don't you do that for everyone? You'd gain loads of followers, not on Instagram. But uh, Swami doesn't agree. He says this isn't the case. It would please people for a few minutes. It's two minutes of satisfaction for you and it makes me feel good, but it won't change your mind or help you with your journey. 
I mean, on one hand, that's a fair enough answer if you suspend your disbelief a little bit. But then Louis brings up the fact that Swamiji is a fan of magic and went to Las Vegas and saw a show, which was David Copperfield, and they talk about that. So as I kind of already mentioned, to me, a lot of these miracles sound like sleight of hand tricks, which take skill, but they are just magic tricks, aren't they? And I think Louis is attempting to draw that comparison. So they talk about going to see the show and the Swami says, I very much enjoyed it. For a few minutes, I'm very happy, which sounds like a bad Edinburgh Fringe review. But he says that my magic and his magic are very different. And then it gets a little bit heated where the Swami is clearly annoyed that Louis keeps asking about the miracles. This is all you want to talk about. My instant thought is, how is this for Mike? I know. This is Mike's big chance to talk to the Swami. It's almost like it's his birthday party or something and then someone else is just getting drunk and like taking the spotlight. This is the punch up at the wedding and it's Mike's big day. How much money is Mike spent on all of this? And, you know, probably a big part of it is you get a one-on-one meeting with the Swami and now Louis and the BBC are just stealing it. So they have this kind of tense exchange, but that's all finished kind of quickly. He gives Louis a hug and says goodbye. It's almost a bit water off a duck's back with this guy. He's clearly probably faced these sorts of questions hundreds of times. One nice thing for Mike, he gets a new name. It seems to come out of nowhere, like Swamiji's maybe just made it up. His name is Manu, and he describes Mike as a great man of science. And that's it. They leave and go back to Mike's dorm. Mike says, I knew he'd play down the miracles. He doesn't want it to be too sensational for a Western audience. Classic Swami. It's real. Don't worry, it's real. It would happen, but it's incidental. Don't worry about it. It goes to a different school. Yeah. (laughs) I think Louis is probably feeling the same way that we are at this stage where he just says, look, listen, Mike, between you and me, do you really believe in these materializations? I think he's sort of saying, I understand that you want to agree with the spirituality of it, but do you really believe that he's producing bracelets out of nowhere? And Mike says, yes, because the mastery of yoga allows you to manipulate the physical world. I really need to get in on yoga. My downward dog is good, but I have not got a bracelet yet. Mike's so sold on it. He's upset that he's been asked to justify it. And there's another guy in the dorm as well, isn't there, who asks how it went. And when Louis says he's a bit sceptical, he's not happy about that either. So they're all really, really sold on this idea of him being an actual wizard. Yeah, that's a bit scary. And I think you're right. This kind of groupthink idea seems to have taken hold. That way cults lie. But what we've seen from the Swami, he is not manipulating them in any bad way. Did you find out any more about him? No, I couldn't really. I'm not joking. His Wikipedia page is Harry Potter length. There is so much going on there, but it's all mainly just about his different areas of expertise and different things that he does. So still going? Still going, yeah. He's still doing live performances on YouTube. I wonder if he does like Pandora bracelets now. Louis kind of waves Mike off to go back to America and says, will his friends in the lab call him Mike or Manu when he gets back? But Louis back on the road as well. Before he leaves, he wants to hug Amma. That's his goal. And so he goes to where her latest tour date is, I guess. Amma mania. There's huge crowds, there's merchandise. It kind of does look like a music festival. Yeah, it totally does. And Louis finds himself in conversation with two white women, one American, one British, I'm guessing by the accents. And he's asking why they're there and asking about this adoration. It's almost like she's not human. And they kind of say, well, you know. Mm. Louis says, why is she any better than any of us? Like That makes me feel uncomfortable. And they say, well, no, she is like you. That's what's nice is you're inside her and she's inside you. But then they say, well, maybe she's not human. So they can't really decide (laughs) but no one really commits to this which is interesting no one is like yeah definitely she is a walking god but they all skirt around the subject despite there being what looks like thousands of people maybe hundreds louis manages to find ramanan and they chat Amma arrives and she's guided onto the stage where she will be sitting and then what we see is a huge queue a massive queue this is going to take a long time so Louis having spotted Courtney goes to speak to him and this is where Courtney explains that experiencing the thing is better than reading it and he uses the example of chocolate says you could write a thesis on chocolate you could read books on chocolate but unless you experience the taste of chocolate all the books in the world won't tell you what that experience is like Do you think it's starting to get to him that he's not allowed to have any sensual pleasure, including eating chocolate? That man has a dairy milk bar underneath his bed, which he scoffs at night. Give him a Mars bar, (laughs) for God's sake. Just eating Twixes when no one is looking. 
So Louis is in the queue to get his hug and he says to Ramanan that he's feeling quite stressed out at the prospect of it and maybe it's the crowds and all of that. And Ramanan says, every hug with Amma is different for every person but it's a taste of enlightenment. So kind of don't overthink it, just experience it. But Louis prepping himself, he's kind of gearing himself up, he takes off his glasses, ready to really get deep in there. I was going to ask you, is that a thing that you have to do? Do you have to remove your glasses for hugs? If I'm going in for a good hug, I will take my glasses off. Okay, that's good to know. And then it's Louis' turn. He's up and he's in front of Amma. Someone says this is Louis is from the BBC television. So she's going to give him a good one. She knows that this is being filmed. <laughs> Louis gets in and they have a very nice hug. It's like he's a bit hesitant at first and then she kind of presses his head into her shoulder. Like, come on, you've really got to lean into it. And she gives him some little kisses as well. It looks like a great hug. And then Louis says, Something very odd happened. Which sounds much more worrying than it is. He said he felt like something had touched him. That's not making it any better. No. You see him afterwards and he just looks quite blissed out is probably the best way of describing it. His voice has changed as well. It's gone from that usual kind of tone to a quite whispery, yeah, I can't explain. It's very, um, clearly something has happened to him or he feels he's had an experience. I think Ramanan asked him how it was and he says it was very comforting. He does say he's not sure if it's the effect of the crowd or the incense or something like that. But since he arrived... He felt most like something has touched him spiritually after his hug with Emma. He says he was kissed on the cheek and he felt like he wanted to cry. Quite a big and emotional experience if it makes you feel like you want to cry. And he says even he had fallen under the spell like many other Westerners. Which isn't necessarily a positive thing to say. He has his final goodbyes after being hugged with Ramanan. And Ramanan's message to him is don't let this be the end of your search. You know, you've got to continue to look for that enlightenment. And then the voiceover signs off with the laziest Friday 5pm line I've ever heard. Louis says, I would start looking immediately. Immediately I got home. (laughs) Doesn't even grammatically make sense. How did that get signed off? They were just like, Louis knows what he's doing. Just let him ad live. We need a line. We have to send this to the BBC really quickly. Come on, come on, come on. Maybe they just chopped it up out of existing audio. And so ends the episode. We're treated in the end credits to a scene of Louis playing his guitar with a new number. It's not George Michael Faith. He goes for Karma Comedian. Very fitting by Boy George Coach Club. You know what? The accompaniment is of a higher quality than he's had in past episodes, which probably carries him a little bit. But I'd say he's been practising. He's a lot better. Yeah, but he's had hours and hours to do it. He takes that guitar everywhere. That didn't seem to help him before. (laughs) He's had now two series to get better. I think he's been putting some time into the guitar. Enlightenment. Good Louis or bad Louis, Matthew? Well, I start by putting this question to you, much like a Swami asks other people a question which is put to him. Do you feel like you know what the meaning of life is after finishing this episode? Not at all. Do you? No, I do not. And I don't know whether I'm going to find it from the white Westerners that have moved to India. If I was going to find it, if it's out there, I don't believe Courtney's got the secret. That man is too intense. I think critically, and if I'm going to keep up a standard, I'm going to say it's bad, Louis. And not to say it's a bad episode. I think there are lots of really compelling characters in this. And I think as it sets out in the beginning, this is about Westerners who move to India in search of this. It's very interesting. But is it really right to go to another country and not really speak to anyone at all about Indian culture and the enlightenment which these people are seeking? Maybe that's something you would consider differently now. But this has a very specific focus. And I don't know whether it's quite a comfortable one to watch. I think I also am going to say bad Louis, not just jumping on the bandwagon, because there were a couple of times where I feel like Louis skirted around what he really wanted to ask and he didn't ask it. He scratched the surface and he just didn't get into it. And I know that maybe that's not the point of Weird Weekends, but it would have made for more of an interesting episode, I think. Sorry, Louis. It's a bad one. Sorry, Louis. You know when they used to get gunged on Get Your Own Back? I'm going to gunge this episode. Gunge Louis. Got touched in a special way. Now we're getting gunged. <laughs> uh, probably leave it there. Probably leave it there. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter and Instagram under at AllTheRoopod, where Matt posts funny things. Next time, we'll be discussing Weird Weekend Series 3, Episode 3, about Boers in South Africa. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.